The time is now. Volume 3, Episode 49. This is Employment Law Now, and I'm your host still, Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. There is a lot going on today in the uh, areas of wage and hour regulation, wage theft of employees, uh, retaliation in the wage and hour arena, and I thought it would be really helpful uh, to all of you out there to sift through some of these issues uh, with a special guest who clearly has some expertise in this area. So I am extremely honored to have Rebecca Nathanson uh, with me today for the podcast. Uh, Rebecca is the director of the Anti-Retaliation Unit and Council to Labor Standards at the New York State Department of Labor, Division of Labor Standards. Just by way of a little bit of background, uh, Rebecca was named the director of the Anti-Retaliation Unit back when it was established in October 2015 by Governor Cuomo in an effort to curb retaliation against workers who complain about wage theft, misclassification, um, and other rights protected by the New York State Labor Law. Uh, As counsel to labor standards in that role, Rebecca assists the Deputy Commissioner for Worker Protection in conducting complex investigations into employers and in creating, launching, and leading the inaugural efforts of the Governor's Joint Task Force on Worker Exploitation. Um, and I asked, not necessarily knowing if I'd get a yes, but asked Rebecca to come on to the podcast to talk a little bit about what she does, uh, issues pertaining to uh, retaliation in her unit, uh, how the department and the division uh, are perceived, and you know, just some uh, best practices that employers should be thinking about in these areas. So with that rambling introduction, Rebecca, thank you so much again for uh, joining us. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I understand, and as I just said in your uh, brief bio that I just gave, um, I understand that you have two separate but somewhat related roles at the Department of Labor. Can you describe what those roles are more specifically? Sure. Back in April of 2015, I was hired by the Deputy Commissioner of Worker Protection, James Rogers, as uh, counsel to labor standards. Uh, He envisioned uh, a role for an attorney in the investigative process where um, some some cases lend themselves to either be more complex or have unique uh, legal theories behind them, um, either being put forward or uh, proffered by the defense. And um, you know he had a, a vision for this role. Um, I came in and stepped into that role, uh, which was the first of its kind. Um, one of the trends that we were seeing uh, that investigators were raising as sort of uh, under the I guess complex issues were uh, uh, retaliate was the issue of retaliation. So investigators were raising their hands a lot that uh, retaliation was coming up. Employers were providing information, and they weren't sure where to go from there. Um, and uh, I sort of naturally took on this position to help investigators handle the retaliation investigations. 
they're a little bit more complex and, and, and different than a wage investigation. And uh, along those lines, uh, in the fall of 2015, Governor Cuomo um, announced that he had some uh, money <laughs> to start a new initiative, and uh, we pr made a proposal for that initiative, and uh, it was granted, and as a result of the long, boring history of given, Governor <laughs> Cuomo created the Anti-Retaliation Unit Department of Labor. And it's interesting because when uh, employers and people think about retaliation as a concept, they tend to connect it with discrimination, harassment, and you know retaliation for employees perhaps going to HR or complaining about discrimination or harassment. They tend not to think about it as much in the area of wage and hour. Mm -hmm. so, so without getting into obviously specific cases that you're dealing with, what kinds of situations, what, what's the context where we'd be dealing with a retaliation issue in the context of a wage and hour matter? Sure, so anytime a worker complains about a right under law and they're punished for it, that's the easiest definition of retaliation. And so any right under the labor law, they're complaining they're not getting paid minimum wage. They're complaining they're not getting overtime, they're not getting a meal break. It doesn't have to be a monetary violation. They're just complaining about a right, um, a statutory right under the labor law, or they're participating in a department investigation, or they state that they're going to file a complaint at the department um, or in court. Um, those complaints are protected, um, just as any complaint under the human rights laws would be protected from, from punishment. Does your unit tend to get involved um, based on uh, an initial complaint being made by an employee, current or, or uh, former, or uh, are you just as likely to go to a company uh, on your unit's own behalf? Sure. So. Um Depending on whether I'm dealing with a retaliation claim or a more complex wage claim, wage claims can arise in a variety of ways. They can be initiated by a complaint, whether anonymous or not. They can be initiated by the department, um, let's say we're looking at a specific industry, or they can be initiated by a referral from another agency, whether that's state or federal. Um, as far as retaliation goes, those are really complaint-based uh, because we only know about people who are being punished if they call us to tell us that they're being punished. So I want to get this perception question out of the way um, and I've been lucky enough to have um, other government agency and board guests come on to the podcast and I've asked a similar question because I am fascinated by it. So what is your reaction to those uh, on the employer or the management side who simply believe that the Department of Labor is just a pro-employee governmental body? I think generally we hear that um, in two different situations. Uh, the, the circumstances where we hear that is either one where an employer has not kept any records under the labor law whatsoever. Um, that, uh, that results in the department being able to accept statements made by workers as true and there are no records or any other documents to disprove it. Um, employers in those situations generally complain that uh, we're just taking the word of the worker, but uh, in fact, we're following what the law dictates under the burden-shifting framework. Um, the other circumstance where that generally arises is when we're having to enforce a provision of law that employers either perceive as unfair or is in fact unfair. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, I, I see this a lot with the derived rate. Mm -hmm. So in the hospitality industry, uh, the 
the state minimum wage has to be paid per hour. And so if a weekly rate is paid, even if the employer in their head had, had kind of made up the, divided the, the sum of the salary by the hours, if they're not paying an hourly rate, their weekly salary will be derived and that can result in a huge underpayment for employers when if you just took the hourly rate and divided it by the by the hours worked you're getting an underpayment that you're not seeing an underpayment um, but the department has to take all the hours derive a rate and then take that um, take that amount and calculate an overtime rate and so it, it creates a higher rate of pay um, and you know it's it it is un, it is unfair um you know it is unfair for uh, employers but you know employers who who follow the law or who try under the hospitality wage order to to follow it best they can they can really protect themselves in the best way which is assign an hourly rate and give that notice of pay rate and so if an employer gives a notice of pay rate that lists an hourly rate any mistake an employer makes from there, they're actually going to probably be okay. Mm -hmm. So you, so you're definitely aware of the perception that the, that the department is viewed by employers as pro-employee. Um, but your take is that you know you're not pro-employee. You're you're trying to enforce what the law says. Trying to enforce the law, I think you know those are the two instances where I see the complaint the most. But mm -hmm. yes, you I'm mean aware complaint from the employer. From the employer that we're just taking the word of the employee, or we only you know we're mm -hmm. we're pro-employee, as you said. But I recognize there's also that general perception, um, apart from these two instances, and you know the the name worker protection is on my business card. Uh, the labor law was designed to protect workers, and. While we try to conduct full, fair investigations to reveal the truth of what's going on, like any other regulatory enforcement agency, we're basically conducting audits. And where someone falls short on an audit, they're going to have to pay a bill. And um, by I think the nature of a regulatory regime, employers are, are feeling like they're... they're the department is against them. Well, you're not coming into the company to say, you know, attaboy, great job, thanks, and see you soon. I mean, you're, we would you're, love you're typically, it. yeah, you're typically interfacing with an employer when there's a claim that they were retaliating, the employee was retaliated against, or there's a claim that there was an underpayment. So I think that's probably what's feeding, right or wrong, the, the company's perception that, hey, you're a government body that's pro-employee, anti-me. That's correct, of course. Um, and what the employers aren't seeing are the investigation we're doing on the employee side. And on the reverse, many times in uh, retaliation cases, we close way more than we sustain. Um, employees are making the same complaint. You're on the employer side. So um, I think it's the nature of the business that we conduct. That's interesting. So there are many situations where you're, as you said, you're not taking the employee's word for it, you're doing your investigation on the employee side, uh, and in many cases finding that the employee's uh, allegation, for lack of a better term, isn't proven. In more cases than not. Really? Correct. I mean, we're conducting a full investigation, so um, a lot of these cases don't have evidence, um, but we that's why we started the unit, we have trained attorneys in the unit, um, we conduct, you know, investigatory cross-examination on both sides because it doesn't help us if we're not getting to the truth of what's going on. 
All right, so before I get your thoughts on some real interesting um, Department of Labor issues and initiatives, I want to first talk about process. Um, you, you touched on this a little bit, but how and when does the department get involved in a matter involving an employer-employee issue, and how specifically do you get involved in that process? Okay. Um, as I mentioned before, on the wage side, there are different ways that a complaint can arise. On the retaliation side, it's a little more streamlined. Workers are complaining. Uh, we take a complaint, whether it comes from um, a worker, a sister agency, um, or anonymously, and the department will determine whether there's enough there to go out and conduct an investigation. Um, generally, on the wage side, uh, investigators in the state walk into businesses. Uh, they have the right by statute to be there and to conduct a full investigation, uh, or in, I'm sorry, an ins full inspection of the premises to make sure the postings are up. Unannounced? Unannounced. There's no requirement for an announced visit. Um, and to speak with the employees. Uh, we'll attempt to speak with the employer if they're interested in speaking with us, um, but it's always an employer's option. Um, if they don't want to speak at that time, no one should feel pressured to speak at that time other to give their identifying information and, you know, title. Um, and uh, we can always set up an appointment to speak with an employer and their representative of choice at a later time. So if an investigator comes knocking on the door, an employer doesn't have to necessarily just open the books or, or you know, uh, uh, provide available employees to speak with them. There can be a discussion about setting up an appointment or having the investigator come back. Well, I wouldn't say or that. that. Depend. All right. I would say I was going that, a little further than, yeah. than what you were saying. Okay. I would say that when an investigator comes, uh, they have the right to inspect any books and records and to speak with employees. If you, as an employer, do not want to make any statements, that's okay. Tell the investigator you'd like to speak with your counsel or your accountant first, and could you set up a time for a follow-up call? But as far as books and records, you ha the right is to inspect the books and records. If they're on the premises, you have to let them uh, be seen, and certainly uh, do not interfere with investigators speaking with non-management employees. Is there something in particular that prompts the department to take um, perhaps even quicker or more aggressive action uh, than might otherwise be taken in another case? So, um, on the wage side, any, any situation where we see uh, child labor, uh, complain about child labor coming in, we're going to go out within a few days, or no payment of wages if we hear... Um, Different than underpayment? Or yes, so, no payment. No, no payment. No payment. It's been weeks or more than a week, and uh, generally uh, a worker has to be paid generally uh, seven days after the completion of the work period. So if it's been longer than that, and um, we're hearing that uh, uh, there's a situation where employees are working and not being paid at all, um, we're going to get out there very quickly. Um, similarly, in the retaliation side, um, you know, the, when we set up the retaliation unit, what we decided was we wanted to set up a system where we could act or react in a moment's notice to sort of mitigate any initial harm. Um, so in a retaliation scenario where we have uh, heard that there's a threat of immigration, um, there's some physical harm involved, police, um, any, any sort of imminent harm that could be coming, um, we'll try to react very quickly, get on the phone or get out to the employer and have a conversation um, about uh, 
threats which are unlawful by themselves under the labor law. Um, the threat need not be acted upon, but that um, if there's been any um, threat of an urgent action and the action hasn't yet been taken, and we can de-escalate the situation, or an, is an issue where a worker has worked there a long time, they've been terminated, they're saying it happened over a complaint about wages, we'll try to call the employer and set up a conversation, not to put the employer on spot, on the spot, but to have a conversation about maybe a mistake has been made. Um, those those sort of conversations are usually very successful when there's a lower level manager who maybe went a little rogue and was annoyed because the worker kept complaining about his overtime, not getting his overtime. Um, in those situations, um, we're sometimes successful. The, the employer can bring the worker back. We explain the requirements to the employer mm -hmm. and the employee. And if we can mitigate something right away, you know, we're not looking to impose penalties. Um, you know, we're just looking to correct a situation. So as a corollary to that, is there any difference between how the department addresses, say, first-time offenders versus repeat offenders? Absolutely. Um, and I think there's a difference between first-time offenders uh, and employers who maybe have repeat repeated investigations and then repeat offenders. So a first time offender, you know, as long as they cooperate with our investigation, you know, what I always tell businesses is this is an audit. We'll get through the audit, cooperate with our investigation. And that cooperating with the investigation might mean you hire an attorney who zealously ad zealously advocates on your behalf. That's okay, mm -hmm. um, and you know I respect that, of course. You don't but look down on the companies who are bringing in lawyers that they must be guilty of something if they bring in their lawyer in. No, absolutely not. And on the contrary, many times when lawyers are hired, the investigations go much more smoothly. Right. Um, it's an employer's choice, um, but. I think what we see the difference between someone who's had multiple investigations, because maybe mistakes have happened, maybe, you know, if we see someone with a second investigation and that its payroll has been late, we call them up and there had been a huge snowstorm and they didn't get the paychecks, that's not a repeat offender. That's someone who happens to have a, an incident that will be resolved quickly versus a repeat offender. And absolutely, um, we take a very strong stance against repeat offenders. And how I would define repeat, repeat offender isn't necessarily the business's name has two cases in our system, but it's someone who went through a full investigation, was educated on the minimum wage law and overtime laws and the other laws under the labor law, and they're still not paying minimum wage or overtime. Um, I would not comp consider a repeat offender someone who made the mistake to not pay spread of hours, right? A nuanced part of the law. Um, repeat offenders who are, you know, vagrantly just ignoring the labor law um, are treated differently and they can be treated differently in many ways. Um, we always give even repeat offenders a chance for the most part to come into compliance. Um, generally, the really egregious repeat offenders are not cooperating with our investigation um, and are, I would consider a repeat offender something, again, egregious. And the department can kind of handle those cases in a bunch of different ways. One way is maybe I'll get involved and I'll issue some subpoenas for testimony and we'll take a deposition, an investigatory deposition, which uh, is, is a little bit more unique. 
um, sure. than, than a traditional investigation. Um, sometimes we'll bring in our task force partners uh, if it's very serious. And so in 2015 or 16, the governor created um, the, the, a, a different task force than um, anything that had ever been done in the state, which was to say that all the state agencies can not only share information, but can leverage each other's powers. Because if you're not complying with one of the state laws, then perhaps if it's so egregious, you know, you might not be entitled to do business in the state. Um, but again, these are just, this must be like 1%. This I was going to say, that's got to be on the extreme side. This the, the is the worst of the worst. And, um, you know, we're talking about workers who have who are laboring, there might be labor trafficking, they've never been paid, employers who are rolling back the time clock so that they don't have to pay overtime. And, um, you know, we may choose to bring in our, our state partners or agencies. Uh, so if you're a restaurant and you're rolling back the time clock or you're not paying overtime, well, you might get a visit also from state liquor who might tell you you need to get into compliance or you might not have the privilege of having a liquor license. Um, but the last way that we handle um, the most egregious of the egregious cases are um, to refer them to our criminal partners. Yeah, I'm going to get into the criminal in, in a moment. If, you, if you're comfortable identifying, tell me if you're not, are there particular industries um, that seem to get tripped up more when it comes to wage and hour uh, issues or wage and hour retaliation, whether inadvertently or not? Uh, are there particular industries, whether it's because of the uh, unique aspects of that industry um, that you, you just see seem to get tripped up more often than others? So in the wage side, I would say, again, the restaurant industry operating on this hospitality wage order, um, you know, a, a, that is actually the only industry that has a requirement to pay the, the rate per hour. And again... As opposed you, to salary or some other basis. Well, in the other industries, you have to pay the hourly rate per hour, but... Um, you, if, if a rate is derived, let's say in a nail salon industry, they're going to take the weekly salary and divide it by all the hours worked. In the hospitality industry, they're going to take the weekly salary and divide it by 40, which as you can imagine, creates a much higher rate. So that was sort of what I was explaining before, maybe not as clearly. Um, that trips up the hospitality wage orders. The wage orders are complex and confusing and um, the, I would say the hospitality wage order, the building services wage order, so superintendents um, can, can trip people up. Um, we see a lot of, um, you know, non-compliance, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, of not willful, but non-compliance, technical, non te technical non-compliance. And if there's a violation on the hospitality wage order or under the law, we actually don't have the discretion we might have compassion, but we don't have the discretion to exercise any compassion because the wage order says what the wage order is, and those are the computations. And so my my message to every employer I speak to in those industries or in any industry is issue that notice of pay rate, that, that, that document when you hire someone that says what the hourly rate is. If you issue that, if I could get every employer in the state to issue that, it would protect them. And, and help them um, that's great going advice. forward. No, that's great advice. I mean, it was established to help workers, so the workers know what their rate of pay is, mm -hmm. and that is also a primary concern of ours. But employers who are in compliance are going to have a good workforce and are going to have, right, it's all going to come together. So 
um, any lawyers or accountants or yourself, you know, that notice of pay rate that you write down what the hourly rate is and you pay by that hourly rate, whatever mistakes you make, you're still going to be okay because you're not going to be stuck with a derived rate under one of the wage orders. And the notice of pay rate for those who don't have it or those who don't have a lawyer who can give it to them, are those available on websites or online? They're available for free at New York State DOL. Uh, website, which isn't the easiest to navigate, I will admit. But if you type in notice of pay rate, um, and you must give it in the language of the worker's primary language, it's available, I believe, in the top seven languages on the website. Um, it also doesn't, you know, in the hospitality industry, it does have to take a particular, uh, it does have to include a lot of information, especially if you want to be entitled to the tipped credit. You have to inform the employee upon hire or pr prior to taking the tip credit, that they're going to be getting this tip credit minimum wage. So, you know, I see a lot. I see a lot of concerns in the hospitality wage wage order, and, and a lot of times it's not an employer's fault. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, New York State and, and other jurisdictions as well, but, you know, you have a state here where the primary obligations, or at least the primary obligations tripping up employers in so many cases, uh, are not contained in an easy-to-find statute. Um, they are, as you've been referring to them, these, these few wage orders, um, general wage order or some industries have their own specific wage orders. Um, but a lot of companies, I still will hear, I didn't know what spread of hours was, I've never heard of it. Right. Uh, it's not in a statute, it's not in a particular law or in a book, it's, it's basically uh, in, in these wage orders uh, as well as some of these other requirements. Um, and, and I've referred to wage and hour so many times as the closest thing that we have in employment law to strict liability. Uh, and to some extent, that's sort of what I think you just said before, uh, that as much as the comp much compassion as you'd like to have in many of these cases, there, there really isn't a discretionary line to toe. There isn't. Um, the, way, the part that the department has the discretion on is uh, the liquidated damages. So if it's your first time around and you've made some mistakes, um, you, you know, the liquidated damages are going to be much lower. Um, repeat offenders, the liquidated damages are going to go up. Generally, when I talk to employers, um, whether it's on the wage side or the retaliation side, I always say to them, "It's your, <laughs> you know, if it's if the temperature is right, I'll say it's your lucky day that it's me calling." And on the wage side, I'll say it because you're not going to be stuck with attorney's fees, and if you made some mistakes, we'll do the audit, fix the mistakes. We can work with you on the penalties. We can work with you on the liquidated damages. Um, granted, there are no penalties on the um, statutory penalties on the civil side mm -hmm. if you're going to court, if, an, if a private attorney is coming, but those are usually so de minimis at the investigatory stage that that's not really the major concern. So I, you know, on the wage side, I think it's it can be an employer's lucky day because they're not going to be stuck with the attorney's fees. And on the retaliation side, it, it could be someone's lucky day because I'm calling in the first instance to fix and you know if we can fix something that has happened even if you did make a mistake even if the employer did threaten the worker right we can fix things going forward um, you know that's also a benefit that you might get um, in in a department process that you would not get in civil litigation so um, we do try to have a balance of a strong enforcement regime but we again we try to balance it with corrective ways to correct mistakes, ways to correct things and move forward, um, you know, and we generally, 
if we can resolve things at the wage investigatory stage, um, it can be really beneficial for an employer, no matter how miserable it is for them. Because once the department goes to an order, um, and what you had asked about process, so we come into a business, Mm -hmm. we do our inspection, we'll get payroll records there or follow up. Um, we'll make it we'll do an investigation we'll make a determination and we'll try to settle the case whether that's wages or retaliation if the case doesn't settle then the department issues what's called an order to comply and uh, the penalty the order to comply can be 200% of the underpayment owed 100% liquidated damages mm-hmm. so you're you could take a $20,000 bill and turned it into a $60,000 bill. So there's a lot of motivation there to settle at the investigatory stage. Um, but if you don't want to settle, if you think that you didn't do anything wrong yeah. uh, and you have a good legal defense, we'll issue an order and that's the mechanism to ask for a hearing. And that'll be before an administrative law judge at that point? It is, and it's before an independent body. So it's not just a judge that works for the Department of Labor? They do not work for the Department of Labor. It's an administrative law judge who works for the Industrial Board of Appeals, also known as the IBA. At that point, the employer becomes the petitioner, uh, the department becomes the respondent, and uh, because the petitioner is essentially appealing the order that we've issued. And then you engage into what essentially is an administrative trial at that point? Administrative trial. Obviously, you can try to settle before. It's a long tough process. Costly as well. Costly. And um, then, of course, there are appeals, Article 78 and such. Okay. And there are, so there are a couple of other issues I just want to make sure I touch on, uh, and they flow from uh, some of the things that you've said already. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago something about immigration. What kinds of immigration issues, um, snafus, uh, do you tend to see that, that employers and those listening to this podcast uh, should be uh, thinking about? We are seeing, um, you know, a, a troubling trend um, of it, workers being threatened with immigration consequences for asserting their rights. Um, for the most part, they are not snafus. They are intentional, deliberate um, ways to exploit workers. Uh, so this tends to be less of the inadvertent bucket of, of issues when we're talking about the immigration part. The immigration, yes. Um, I'm not going to say it's carte blanche. Uh, we did have an employer who um, threatened the worker, admitted he threatened the worker, and apologized, apologized to the worker. Um, and that was really unusual. Um, and he received a, a very small penalty uh, for having done so and having put the worker through it, um, pretty much de minimis compared to up to the 20000 that we could issue. Um, other than two instances where the employer offered an apology, one, there was an admission, one, they said, I didn't mean it that way, but I'll still apologize if he took it that way. For the most part, these are um, egregious cases where, for the most part, employers are hiring undocumented workers uh, because they don't want the workers to complain. And uh, then when they do complain, um, you know, they threaten them with deportation consequences um, or, you know, we're hearing a lot of Trump being mentioned. Interesting. So politics is playing a lot into this. 
Well, uh, we're only taking the information we can hear yeah. from the workers, but uh, we, you know, we are hearing references to the president, and um, we we are um, in some aspects seeing an uptick in these threats. Uh, in other aspects, uh, at times we're not. Um, and we think that it, it is going, there's such a rampant amount of threats that they're working and the workers aren't, aren't reporting them. Um, but those cases get our most serious attention. Um, any case in the state of New York that a worker calls the Department of Labor and says that their employer has threatened them with immigration consequences comes to my unit. Um, and uh, we will kind of come up with a plan to to investigate and, and to, at, at the moment though, you know, try to go out and deter, if it's just been a threat, deter any action being taken on that threat. Interesting. And if, and if the threat occurred. Of course. Of course. Right. You, again, not just taking the word for it, but you're going to be investigating it uh, in the first instance. Correct. Uh, what about the uh, interplay, uh, if there is any, uh, with tax laws uh, and unlawful re-verification after a Department of Labor audit? Um, what what's the issue there, and what do employers need to be thinking about there? So, it does come up a lot. Um, the bottom line is, do not re-verify your employees because. The what does that mean? I don't mean to cut you off, but just for those people who don't sure. even know what the concept is. Sure. So, when you hire an employee, you have to have your employees fill out tax papers, including the I nine. Right? You ask them for certain. Um, uh, employment eligibility proof. Mm -hmm. um, if you have not done that when you hired the worker, do not turn around and do that when the Department of Labor comes. Um, I do understand the sentiment of government is here, I should get my paperwork in order, um, but that def that is not generally a defense. Um, generally, employers are re-verifying because they want to intimidate the employees who are not documented, or they want the employees who are not documented to not come back uh, to work, to speak with the department. Generally, uh, that's because there's a, a maybe two sets of books, or you know the, the undocumented workers are not being paid on the books, and if they can just keep them away while the department's there, they can sort out any issues they have. Um, and so, uh, you know, Supreme Court's made it clear that. Uh, unlawful re-verification uh, can be can be retaliatory and we look at that very seriously if you follow the onboarding process and the laws at the inception of someone's employment this won't be an issue and if you didn't the Department of Labor actually doesn't care all we care about is that you don't start doing it because we came so that's interesting so you're better off if you hadn't done it uh, by mistake even, um, you're better off not doing it as a company than doing it simply because the department is there at your doorstep. That's correct. That's interesting. Um, and, and so we've been talking um, for obvious reasons a lot about uh, the State Department of Labor, um, but it's not only the State Department of Labor that we all need to be cognizant of. Is there, is there anything that you can speak to about cooperation between the Federal Department of Labor uh, and the State Department of Labor, and uh, as well as the state and local criminal law enforcement agencies? Sure. So um, USDOL um, and State DOL, we will uh, coordinate if there's overlap. So last year I had a couple cases, they had already done some investigation, 
Um, that was the first thing the employer raised. The U.S. DOL was already here. We got on the phone, and anywhere there was overlap, we worked it out so that there wasn't overlap. Um, neither agency needs extra work, um, and neither employer needs to have to deal with figuring out who to pay. So uh, we're not. In neither agency is interested in that. Um, we are. That's generally. Um, the coordination, um, but there are some, on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes we'll go out together. Um, more so, you know what I mentioned before for the really, you know, one percent egregious offenders. Uh, we are partnering with the criminal enforcement authorities. Right, that's what you mentioned before. I wanted to ask you about that in terms of the difference in case being prosecuted criminally versus civilly. So the DOL is a civil enforcement agency. We can issue penalties and you know, fines and damages. Um, for these, you know, cases where workers are not being paid at all, the clocks are being, you know, where there's fraud. If you're winding back your clock, that's fraud. Um, and that's a crime. And while all failure to pay wages is a crime, um, there's a difference between um, those cases which would elevate, you know, to a, a crimin criminal enforcement. And we would refer those to our um, to our partners, you may have seen in the news, um, we have a construction task force uh, with the Department of Labor and the Attorney General's Office and the downstate district attorneys, um, and we all partner up um, in the construction industry. Um, you can see online um, not only you know cases that where where um, you know th these are really high. You know we announced a case last week, six million dollars being returned to workers through the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in partnership with the DOL. Um, and you know there's sort of a, a new approach to these criminal cases. It's not just wage theft, but there's such a level of exploitation going on. There's a scheme to defraud. There's a Failure to pay taxes, insurance, premiums, um, and um, in one case several years ago, a worker who died on the work site who uh, they failed to, to, you know, he was digging a ditch, they didn't secure the sides, the ditch came down on him, um, and uh, that case was prosecuted as murder. So. Um, you know, the worst of the worst are getting crim are, are being prosecuted as as they should be. They are crimes. Wage theft is a crime. If you're going to reach into an employee's pocket and steal money, um, it, it, it's going to be prosecuted criminally. Now it's theft, right? As opposed to everything we've talked about here today, which in the 99% of the cases is mistakes or you know, failure to pay overtime, straight pay, even failure to pay overtime at all in a small business, right? Anyone who's made mistakes is not going to be criminally prosecuted. And even though on the civil side, that's all uh, very helpful and um, probably some size of relief out there. Um, even on the civil side, though, is it enough to say that you're just going against the, the corporate structure, the corporate entity, whether it's you know, an S corporation, whether it's an LLC, or is there personal liability perhaps in, in even the inadvertent kinds of cases? In all cases, um, there's individual liability for the persons, the persons who managers, owners, who are um, under the economic realities test involved in the day-to-day. -day. So scheduling, payroll, um, hiring, firing, those types of things. Any person who does those 
those actions, those employment actions in a in a in a in someone's job. It's their duty and responsibility. Sorry about that. Um, they can be held responsible individually. Um, so you know it's important when when employers take on these roles that they learn their responsibilities. You know, under training's even more important uh, for that reason. Training is really important, and you know the Department of Labor does free trainings for employers. Great segue, because uh, I was just going to ask you. You know, obviously, beyond doing a podcast like this or speaking uh, on a conference panel, does the department do any other educational outreach that might benefit employers and various managers uh, at the company? So, so we give employers free employer seminars in a variety of languages. The only downside to that is we don't post them online. So if someone's interested, they should call the Department of Labor, 888-4-NYS-DOL. That number again is? 888-4-NYS-DOL. And um, just let the person who answers the phone know that uh, you're calling to find out about employer panel, I'm, I'm sorry, employer education seminars, and it'll be, you'll be, you'll be notified probably in mail, you'll give your information, you'll be notified in mail in your language of choice, of course. Um, How does that work? Do they call, go to the employer, or is this a seminar that's being done for all employers to attend? So we'll do seminars based on wage orders or industries. So... Um, you know, we'll give a free seminar in October, let's say, on the hospitality wage industry. So, a wage order, I'm sorry. So, um, there's no public schedule, which really we should do and get mm-hmm. out there so that people know. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, a- any employer can call us. Um, I've had employers call me um, and ask for advice. And while I can't give legal advice, I certainly can give in- advice regarding compliance with the law. And um, any employer reaches out to us for help. We don't turn around and investigate that employer. Well, I was just, that's funny. I was just going to, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm, there's got to be somebody out there on the train, in the car, at the desk listening to this and, and thinking to himself or herself, all right, well, what if I call and say I want to be educated on X or Y or I want to ask about a seminar? Is that putting my company on the radar where now you're thinking, well, they must be asking because they're doing something wrong, so now we're going to go and turn this call into an investigation? We would never do that. I can't promise the person calling me that if an, a complaint comes in, I won't investigate it. Sure. But I've received calls uh, when we did the big um, when we did our big nail salon initiative a few years ago. I had a nail salon call me to discuss their training program. Um, they had been having thinking about implement, implementing some charging, which I had explained you can't charge for training. Um, and we went through everything, and there was something that they identified that they were doing that was wrong. And I said, look, you can't do that, or it's not the best practice, and um, you should fix that going forward. And I made a little note so that if a worker does ever complain, I can then say, hey, this company actually called, they figured it out, and they fixed it. That company's not going to really have to deal with any penalties, right? If they owe someone some money, they were going to have to pay the money they owed. Terrific. So from a takeaway standpoint, and and I really appreciate so much uh, you taking the time uh, to do this. I think this is helpful for both sides um, on a lot of these issues. From a takeaway standpoint, what best practices would you suggest for employers to best avoid dealing with you and your unit and the Department of Labor? Well, I don't think anyone should avoid it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) You don't take it personally. I don't take it personally, no. Um, I mean, look, if we're coming, best practices for us, if we're coming, cooperate. That doesn't mean you have to sit down and and give an interview, right? You 
you don't have to um, speak. You can let the investigators in, let them do their inspection, um, ask questions. If the investigator's not giving you answers, ask to speak to their supervisor. Um, nothing will be ever held against you for asking. Uh, that's why the supervisors are there. Um, as far as not seeing us, um, you know, the best thing an employer can do is call us, ask for help, call, um, you know, law firms or HR companies that specialize in this. But for the real small companies that really can't afford that, um, we give these free class classes. Um, you can contact me. You know, we will, we will help you. We want businesses to be successful. And if all else fails, fill out that notice of pay rate. Google New York State Department of Labor, notice of pay rate 195, that's the section under the law, and fill that out for your employees and pay them an hourly wage. Terrific. Rebecca Nathanson, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I can't promise you that I won't reach back out to you to, to have you come back on, but this has been uh, terrific and really appreciate your time. You got it. Thanks so much for having me.